So every once in a while I get into a conversation where I'll be talking to someone and they'll tell me, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church. Or I love Jesus, but I despise organized religion. You guys have been in these conversations, right? And it sounds so noble and true and authentic, right? It just sounds good. Now, there's a lot of flawed logic in those statements, but when I'm talking to these folks, I'm, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to woo them back to the love of God's people. So one of the things I'll say is, you know, that sounds good, but, you know, isn't Jesus really easy to love? I mean, come on, he was God, he was the perfect human, died on the cross for us, fed people. I mean, geez, he's pretty easy to love. And then I wonder if you love all of him. Like there was a time where he said, you know, if someone led one of these little ones astray, it would be better if a millstone was put around your neck and you were cast in the sea. You know, is that the Jesus you like? Like, that's mafia Jesus. Maybe it doesn't fit in your theology. And then I'll tell them about James where it says, how can you say you love God who you can't see, but you don't love your brother who you can see who's made in the image of God? And then I'll say the real problem is Jesus said that he would build his church. And in the book of Revelation, after the resurrection, he's in the midst of the churches. So I don't know how you can love Jesus and not love the people of God, which is the church. Not buildings, but the church. And then I'll move on to organized religion. And the first thing I'll say is, how's unorganized religion working out for you? And then I'll say, like, oh, what does Sunday look like? Does it feel weird? Oh, no, I cut the grass. I get all my errands done. I watch football. And I thought, geez, man, you know, there has to be an outworking of faith. I thought you'd at least go to a soup kitchen or serve or meditate in the wilderness or something like that. And then I tell them, you know, the temple was highly organized and God gave us the blueprint for that. There were Levites and systems that had to be changed. The synagogue was organized. The NFL is organized. So we know the Eagles play today at 1 o'clock. There'll be referees there. They'll wear uniforms. Somebody will work the scoreboard. All the drunks will be there. I mean, everything will be organized. Now, here's what I know, and I try and be gracious. I know these people have had a profound love for the church at some time. They really do. They have fond memories. God worked in their lives. And then something happened, something toxic. Maybe it was a scandal. Maybe a church leader or somebody they respected fell into sexual sin or financial impropriety. Maybe they were told they could no longer belong because of a certain sin. Maybe that church is anti-some people group. Or maybe there's just a rift with somebody in the church. Some people, believe it or not, get out of what they call the habit. I led this girl to Christ when I was at Boeing. She attended here for a long time. I didn't see her for a while. Ran into her at my health club, and I said, um, where are you going to church? And she says, oh my gosh, I don't go. I said, what happened? She goes, I just got out of the habit. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I look at all that, and I think, I know why these people are saying these things. You know why? Because church for all the wonderful adjectives we can write on a whiteboard right now, is messy. Church is a messy place. It really is. Now, here's your quiz for the day. Pop quiz. How many people does it take to make things messy? Not one. Somebody said one. Yeah, it's two. You know, Adam, Adam was alone. That wasn't good, but he, it wasn't messy, right? He could sleep when he wanted, eat when he wanted, Name the animals when he wanted. I mean, walk with God when he, like, one person isn't messy, two people begins the mess. That's called a marriage. <laughs> Double it. We got a family. You think families are messy? 
put a couple hundred people or a couple thousand or 20,000 in a church and you've got a lot of mess. Now, here's what's cool. The Bible anticipated it. Isn't that neat? The Old Testament, you read the early chapters, they were messy. And the Bible anticipated messiness even though we're the redeemed. Even though we love God and you know, God is working on the inside in all of us, uh, there's just something about us. Uh, every so often in a staff meeting, uh, we have to remind ourselves about a proverb. I don't know the exact proverb, but it's in Proverbs, where it says that where there are no oxen, the stalls are clean, but much work is done through many oxen. What it's saying is if you want a church with clean carpets and nothing ever gets messy, then don't ever have people come into your church. But when we all gather in our messiness, we get a lot done, see? That's the idea. So we're a messy group of people. Someone said we're like manure. Put us together for too long, we start to stink. Spread us out, we do our work. Okay? So here we go. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Seven things every church must do. So I've been teaching you through this series of blueprints that every church looks different because it has different people. And there's many ways to do church, but now I'm going to tell you there's seven things every church must do. The first thing every church must do is understand that diversity, diversity is their greatest asset. Galatians tells us that every tribe, every tongue, every female, uh, male, Jew, Greek, all of us, this new community, the beauty is we are one family, we're one in Christ, we've been redeemed. I didn't take time this week to count up all the one another's in the New Testament. I think there's almost a hundred. Let me give you a few. James 5.16 says, we should confess our sins one to another. Colossians 3.13, we are to forgive one another. Galatians 6.2, we're to bear one another's burdens. Titus 1.13, we are to rebuke one another. Some of you are really good at that. 1 Thessalonians 4, we are to comfort one another. Hebrews 10.25, we're to exhort one another. Romans 14.19, we're to edify one another. Romans 15.14, we're to admonish one another. And James 5.16 says we are to pray one for another. Question, how can you do all these things one for another if you're not with one another? So that's why Hebrew says we shouldn't forsake the gathering ourselves like we did today, especially when we see the day approaching. This is the habit some have. Church isn't all about this hour. It's all about out in the atrium, out at the table, during the week, all that we do, the caring one for another. Now, the diversity that I want to talk about here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, look, verse 1, is more of an age kind of thing. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. The wonderful diversity of a church is that we are a family. Therefore, because we're a family, we're not filled with 20-somethings or 80-somethings. We have the whole scope, because that's what families look like. The tendency in the church for older people and I know this because I talk to them. They feel misplaced. Think about it. Even if you're not old, they feel like time has moved on. They've been forgotten, and they really struggle what their contribution is. Younger people think they're looking for a hipper, cooler place because they want things a certain way. They think they have all the answers to life, and they have a lot of passion, 
And so we have this disparity. But if we ever understand we need the wisdom of the older and the passion of the younger and their new ideas, that's when church can thrive. A lot of the guest speakers that come here will say, Bob, I don't know what you're doing, but when I look at how these people relate outside of the service in the hallways, it's unbelievable. I see older people with younger people, they all look like they want to be with one another. And then finally the penny dropped for me when someone said, we're a pilgrimage church. Here's what that means. We've taken about 10 Bible tours to Greece, Rome, particularly Israel. And every time I run one of those trips, I kind of incentivize teenagers or young folks to get on those trips, because I know if I can get somebody early in their life, early in their faith, it'll serve them the rest of their life. Same thing with missions trips and things that we do locally here in the United States. What that has done is helped us to bond outside of these walls. And that's why you'll see older and younger people talking in the halls, seemingly like they know one another, because we are a family. This is what a church should look like. My daughter Leah was in an accident two Christmas Eves ago coming to church. She got a concussion which led to a syndrome called POTS, which was very devastating. And our life, just when you thought it got low, would take just another step lower. And we really struggled this, you know, for a better part of a year and a half. And her friends would come over now and again, spend a little time with her. But after she was healed of this process, she wrote one of the greatest essays I've ever read. And I had a front row experience to watch the people that came over to minister to her. Most of them, most of them, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and yes, 70s. Not because I'm a pastor, but because we had lived life with these people. And they all had stories to tell and things they had done. And my daughter learned a great lesson through that. The Believer's Bible, verse 1 and 2, reads this way. Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectively as if he were your father. The church should lead the way and that there's a way to treat the elderly in our midst. Now, I learned this early in life because my grandmother lived in South Philly, and I would go with her to the seniors meeting every week. I was eight, nine years old. And I got very comfortable about, around seniors. I've always loved them, loved their stories and so forth. But that's the way we treat them. Why? Wisdom, experience, they paid their dues. Talk to younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, sisters. Uh, there's no, no greater thing than when the family's present. I've seen so many younger people get jobs because of our older folks. I've seen so many... Older folks blessed by the younger folks who do worship here. It just goes hand in hand. One of the great blessings is our seniors, our ALS ministry, 60 plus, has started to do group events with our middle school of all ministries. And the last time they got together, Pastor Bob Banks talked to the middle schoolers and he said, we're not as ancient as you think. In fact, we do social media. We actually text. Don't know if you guys know that. Except our texting language is a little different. And he gave them a few. ATD means at the doctors. <laughs> BFF is not best friends forever. It's at at best friends funeral. <laughs> BTW, bring the wheelchair. <laughs> BYOT, bring your own teeth. <laughs> DWI, driving while incontinent. <laughs> this happens to me. FWIW, forgot where I was. LMDO, laughing my dentures out. 
LOL, living on Lipitor. Hope this doesn't happen now. GGLXI, got to go, laxative kicking in. <laughs> Diversity is our greatest asset. Second thing every church must do is help those who can't help themselves. Um, look at verse 2. Verse 3, I'm sorry. Honor widows who are really widows. The word honor means care. Verse 16 said, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and not let the church be burdened. And then he says this again, that they may relieve widows who are really widows. Now there's about 13 verses of inside baseball here on how to care for widows. We're not going to look at all that, but, but the church must care for people that have slipped through the cracks. Must care for them. Now, why does Paul spend so much time here on widows? Well, they knew the Old Testament's teaching. God loved the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, people that fell through the cracks. And we, the people of faith, should care for them. That's our job. Um, the early church, however, messy. The book of Acts. Church is only a few months old. Acts chapter 6 had this disparity where the Greek widows were saying, wait a second, the Hebrew widows are getting more than we're getting. So they raised up seven men. Stephen was one of them, and they kind of figured that one out. Now, why does Paul spend so much time talking about widows? Because in the ancient world, and probably for the two-thirds world today, women get the short end of the stick. So if you were a widow in that day, no entitlement programs, no insurance, um, no Social Security, no widow's benefits. And not only that, you probably couldn't even work. So this was a big problem. How are you going to take care of these people? How are you going to take care of their kids? So why does Paul say take care of widows who are really widows? Because times haven't changed. And depravity is still in our midst. Whenever we hire someone here, we have to educate them a little bit that when they answer the phone, you might get a call one day from someone who says, oh my gosh, if I don't get $3,000 worth of medicine for my child, he or she's going to die. Are you willing to lend us the money? And sadly, we have to say that person is probably looking down a phone book of all churches, and they know if they call 100 churches, two will bite. See, that's how it works. Uh, a lot of people think the church is a redistribution center. Like we collect money from the rich on Sunday to give it to the poor on Monday. Um, a lot of people think we don't know what to do with the money. The function of the local church is to preach the gospel, to disciple people, to go into all the world, missions, and a whole host of other programs that we do. Um, we are not a bank. We're not Calvary Bank. We're not a social enterprise. We are not a redistribution center. And yet, the Bible says here, we are to care for people who are truly marginalized. Let me tell you, that's a hard thing to figure out. We have a care ministry here. We have elders that look at it. We have a form you fill out. We want you to tell on people who are in need. But it's very hard sometimes to figure out who really is in need. If you go through these verses here, you know what Paul's going to say? There is a flow chart everybody goes through when they're struggling. The first place, your first place of refuge is your family. Hopefully everybody gets this. God created the family in the Bible before government, before church, before any other institution, because when times are tough, your family is your first line of defense. Second line of defense here in America is the government. We pay taxes and there are entitlement programs. 
Third line of defense is the body of Christ. That's why we want you in small groups and serving teams so that when you go through hard times, those people can help out. See, the body helps one another out. In the book of Acts, they had all things in common. It's not the church, it's us as the people of God. And then finally, the church is the last resort. We've loaned money to people, scholarship people, help people, um, all the widows we've ever had who we've known intimately. We have watched from a distance, and we've always been a safety net for them. We're never going to let them fall through the cracks. We are not called to keep people up to a middle-class American standard of living. The Bible doesn't say that, but we are to care. Here's the truth. Misfortune can happen to anybody in this room. And because we live in an insurance culture where sometimes you even benefit from bad things, we don't understand that misfortune can happen in this world. The beauty is the church is here. And we have to care for people. And again, it's not easy. We do the best we can. We try very hard at this. And I love it when I see people help people and we never even get involved. But we must care for people. The third thing the church has to do, verses 17 and 18, is care for its leaders. Look at what Paul writes. Let the elders, pastors, bishops, however you want to translate it, who rule well, we could talk about that for a while, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, and it is a labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, this is Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And Jesus said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now there's two ways to care for leaders. One is to care about them financially. The other is to care about their reputation. Let's start with finances. The Bible's saying here that if a church can pay a pastor, it should. Sometimes it can't. When we started this church, I worked for the Boeing Company for four and a half years. I probably stayed too long. I thought I was helping the church. We were saving money. When I went full-time, not only did we recoup that, we kind of took off. So I waited too long. Paul made tents for a living. He, that was his choice. He said, you know what? I'm worthy to be paid. I choose not to be. Some churches can't afford a pastor. Paul made tents. The Jerusalem church was provided for by some of the uh, Gentile churches. It says here he's worthy of double honor. It doesn't mean he makes double that an accountant makes, all right? The word honor there is where we get honorarium. One time I was talking to a guy, and he was asking me how much sizzling summer costs, and I gave him the figure. He goes, oh, my gosh, that seems high. Why does it cost so much? I said, well, don't forget, we've got to pay the speakers. And he said, oh, my gosh, you pay those people? And I said, uh, what do you do for a living? And then he told me, I said, you get paid? And, yeah, the light bulb went on. And I said, yeah, I mean, he goes, well, I thought, like, they did, they came here for free, and then you went and did something for them. I said, no, some of these people do this for a living. And then some people are pastors, and they get a, a paycheck, but we want to honor them. They're away for a weekend or a few days from their home. And so, you know, we honor these people. Now, how much do we pay them? Uh, here at Calvary Chapel, we have compensation manuals where we look at church size, budget, education. We look at like-minded churches, and we pay a little average or better. Uh, the extremes here are, are to pay too low. Some people have this mentality. You know, they have a prayer like, Lord, we want to keep our pastor poor and humble. We'll keep him poor. You keep him humble. <laughs> I always say if you pay, pay peanuts, you'll get monkeys. 
And then you have extremes. The other extreme is celebrity pastors who drive Lexus and Cadillacs, and, and we've seen both of them. The truth is, everything rises and falls on leadership. And so we want leaders who are well taken care of so they can lead the flock of God and take us to the place of being a redemptive community that God longs us to be. The second part of that care might be stronger, and that's their reputation. Look at verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, and those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Can you imagine if we stopped the train every time somebody had an accusation against a church leader? We never get anything done. Now, it's not saying church leaders can't behave badly. We should be on guard for that. But we can't stop for every accusation. Why? One, you may not only see part of the story. Number two, chapter three says they're supposed to be above reproach. The husband of one wife, not given the wine, not given the money. They've already earned the benefit of the doubt is the idea. Now, we've seen a lot of scandals, right? We've seen, you know, improprieties in church. Always remember, whenever you hear of one, there's thousands of guys doing it well who haven't fallen. It's always the first thing to remember. But there is an exhortation here that let's say we see a church leader going awry. What do we do? Well, Matthew 18 says go to him first. Maybe he has a blind spot. If he doesn't listen to you, get two or three more, right? That's what Matthew 18 says. It says here in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, make sure when you get two or three, everybody's examined their own life. You know that beam in your eye deal? Make sure, make sure your life's clean. Make sure you have the right motive. Um, be willing to go on the record, okay? Some people just leave a church. Go on the record. If we're going to work this thing out and make the body of Christ better, then let's work it out. If somebody had an accusation against me, I tell them, all right, do a study, do a report, and then we'll try and figure it out. I believe God is honored when two or three gather and work something out, and maybe they don't even work it out, but at least they did the process, then if this altar were flooded with people getting saved, I think God's as honored when brethren dwell in unity and work things out. James says the tongue, the smallest member, could start the biggest fire. And this stuff can go like wildfire and destroy. Proverbs says where there is no wood, the fire goes out. So just sometimes you listening, you're kind of stoking the fire. It says here, Take two or three, let's try and clean this up, and everybody will win. So we've got to protect leaders. We've got to care for them in two different ways. Now, because this can happen, the fourth thing every church must do is choose leaders wisely. Verse 22 says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, or means suddenly, nor share in other people's sins. Uh, I've talked to so many colleagues who have regretted hiring someone because they were talented. Oh, this guy plays guitar and he can sing. We hired him and now it's a disaster. I've done it. Everybody's done it. Because we overlook character and we look for competency. And that's why our motive at Calvary Chapel has always been, and Chuck Smith taught us, you know, if somebody wants to serve, start him in the nursery. Start him cleaning bathrooms. Why? Observe their character. Choose leaders wisely, lay hands on no one suddenly. The laying on of hands was to transfer 
It was a sign of transfer. So uh, the day of atonement, you would lay your hands on a goat. It was a sign the sins were transferring to that goat. So it's the idea, and listen, that we're only seconding what God has already done. If God raises up a leader here, we lay hands on him and say, God has already done it. We're just seconding God's choice. This week I wrote an e-news. I hope a lot of the parents of teenagers read it where I shared that we've been without a youth pastor since September. And it's not because we're not looking, and it's hard to look while you do, but we want to find the right guy. And they're not falling off trees. Uh, now, the people that are falling off trees are people that want a paycheck. And that's not what we want. We want someone to love your teams, to inspire them, and challenge them in their early years, and to grow the ministry significantly. And that's going to take a little bit of time. So we appreciate your patience, but we don't want to lay hands on someone suddenly, nor do we want to lay hands on a novice, the scripture says. Someone who doesn't have some form of experience. Fifth thing every church must do is speak out against injustice. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, slaves, count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved teach and exhort these things. This is a complicated verse. Now, you have to understand the slavery that existed in the Roman Empire is a lot different than what we've seen in America and in Britain. It wasn't ethnic. Uh, it was more indentured servanthood where these people were paid, but they still were slaves. So Paul's writing about a very difficult problem here, and, and what he's saying is this is an injustice, but it's an injustice that's going to take a long time to work itself out. While it's working itself out as the new community, uh, slaves need to obey their masters. Masters need to treat them well. In fact, in that relationship, you can move the gospel forward. But make... Make no mistake, churches must address these issues. And that's why it was written to Paul, by Paul, to Timothy and Ephesus. They were addressing the issue. They weren't sweeping under the carpet. We know we have a problem. Here's how we're going to deal with it now. And then one day, by God's grace, it'll be gone. We pride ourselves in that we're a justice church. We're part of IJM and a host of other things where we're trying to bring justice to this world. God, again loves the marginalized, and most of that is a justice problem. The sixth thing that every church must do is not major on the minors. Oh, man. This is like the M.O. of most churches, the minors. Uh, look what Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness... He's proud, knowing nothing, but rather is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, somatics, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself, because godly meant with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing in the world. We can take nothing out. Someone ever tells you you can get rich because of the gospel, you need to run. Okay? 
Now, you might get rich for other things. You know, the Bible says that you should leave an inheritance to your children's children. The Bible says if you work hard, if you give, men will give to you, running over, giving. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know, it's not a guarantee or a promise, but if you, if you biblically do certain things and have certain giftings, you may be well off. But the idea that God is a celestial slot machine where you put a hundred in and get a thousand in return is not biblical. What we're all moving towards is godliness, Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness with contentment in our physical experience is great gain. And the fruit of all these disputes and arguments and doctrines, look what it says, envy, strife, reviling people, being suspicious of people. Warren Wearsby said one time, we're going to disagree on 15% of everything we believe, 15%. Now, that's not the virgin birth, Jesus coming again, substitutionary atonement, that's all locked down. So we can't major on the minors, we can't, we can't spend all our time on these sub-issues, or we'll never get anything done ripping apart the early church. And finally, the last thing every church must do is teach their people about stewardship. Verse 17, Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age. Anybody rich in this present age? Raise your hand. Thank you for two or three over here, five over here. Uh, here's why you came to church today. Ready? This is the learning. Everyone in this room is rich in this present age. Everyone in this room. If you have a house with a garage, you are in the 1% of income, ready? In the world. In the world. Showers, refrigerators. I don't care if you live in an apartment. I don't care if you live in the Taj Mahal. You are the rich in this age. So this is for Calvary Chapel. Command Calvary Chapel, Delaware County. Not to be haughty. In other words, don't think you have it all because of what you've done. Now, maybe you've put your gifts to work, but the last time I checked, nobody, nobody kind of planned to be born in America, right? Into their family and the resources, etc., etc. Not to be haughty or trust in the uncertainty of riches. But rather, let them do good. It doesn't say give your money all away. Let them do good. That they might be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. Jesus talked about uh, this time and the time to come. He talked about the money now providing for you, but he also talked about when you give that money away, it's going to a place where moth and rust don't destroy. See, there's a correlation with money. It's weird, strange. That it affects this life and the life to come. One of the things we've tried to do to get ahead of the curve on caring for people is financial stewardship through financial peace. Tom and Martha Spittle have done a fantastic job here. So many people are freer today because they're out of debt. They're learning about insurance. They're learning about 401K and Roth IRAs, things of that nature. But they're also learning about giving. They're also learning about getting in the game with God where you give and God gives back. And all of a sudden this relationship develops where you bless others and you get in, you get in this movement with God of giving and receiving. Paul said, I've abounded and I have abased 
and I learn contentment. It doesn't come just because you're a Christian. It's a learned trait. Whatever place God has me in, I'll bloom where I'm planted. John the Baptist was asked, what do we do? When he preached repentance, he said he who has two tunics, give one. He didn't say give all your money away. He said if you have more than enough, share with others. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with all your wealth, the first fruit of all your crops. The New Testament says, set aside weekly. You know, be consistent about being a joyful giver. Have a right relationship to true riches. These are the seven things every church must do. We need to care for people, love people, steward the gospel message, teach people about stewardship, uh, understand about diversity. We need to do these seven things. Can I say this? This is really my heart now. We can all get better here, all of us. We can all get better because it's all of us. Does everybody understand that? We are the body. Pastor wrote this a long time ago. I could almost quote it verbatim where he was talking about mentoring, which is a very good thing, discipleship. He said he's been asked over a thousand times to mentor people. He said sometimes people will get on an airplane, drive to his church, meet him at his car, and ask them, will he mentor them? He says, the truth be told, they really don't want me. What they really want is someone who doesn't exist. They want Obi-Wan Kenobi. The fictional character in Star Wars who was the strong, steadfast, modest, selfless, measured, patient, and wise warrior who determined the fate of the entire galaxy. People would meet me at my car and say, I'll pay you whatever you want to change me. Some would say, just name the amount. And he would tell them over and over go, over and over again, there's only one problem. Obi-Wan Kenobi is not for hire. And I know exactly what he's saying. See, there's something in all of us, and it's in me. This is how I know it. There's something in every Christian who's looking for the perfect. We're looking for that perfect world where the, where the wolf's going to lie down with the lamb, where the kids are going to play in the streets, where violence is no more, and hospitals are empty. We're all longing for a place, and we're all longing for the authenticity and the holiness that is God. The Bible says that one day the blessed in heart, they will see God. And it's going to be an amazing day. And we're going to apprehend what we've been apprehended by. And it's going to be amazing. And we're so longing for the perfect. That when we see the imperfect, when we see the messiness of people in God's church, it does something in us. There's a fear that comes up. And what we do is we tear one another down. And we don't edify one another because we are so looking for the perfect. And we're looking for it now. And you know what the truth is? We're never going to get it now. I've said this before, everyone will eventually let you down. Not because they're not good people, it's just that they're fallen people. And so I like to say that church is messy, but man, it can be a beautiful mess. It really can. It can be one heck of a beautiful mess, and I think it is. Think about it. Everywhere else you go where you have an experience, why do you have that experience? Probably because of money. You know, if you go somewhere where they treat you well, you know, the customer's always right, you have a wonderful experience, you probably paid a lot of dough, right? Or people have to like you for another reason. Maybe you have influence over them. Church is the only place where the messiness is still here. We don't want to get away from that. 
But there's beauty in this mess. There really is. It's the greatest thing going. Because God built it. He's the shepherd. He's leading us. He's changing us. We're going to have to work things out just like everybody else. But it's still the greatest thing going. And these things we must do.